Bending Not Breaking, The Gifts of Imperfection Edition. Episode 5, Guidepost 3, Cultivating Resilience and Letting Go of Numbing and Powerlessness. Welcome back to Bending Not Breaking. This is your host, Ben Pruitt, and we are thankful that you have joined us and that you're listening in. We are just so excited to be diving into The Gifts of Imperfection, Brene Brown's book on guideposts to wholehearted living. And as we said, we are diving into our third guidepost, and we are excited because at the end of this mini-series, we are coming back to The Legend of Korra. And we are starting with book two of The Legend of Korra when we come back. And we have a, a series of wonderful guests lined up for that. And we are very excited. So get excited yourself because it's going to be great. Um, this episode, though, we have a wonderful guest that I'm really excited about. Um, and let me introduce Fran McMahon. And they are from the Best Damn Camp podcast, which is a Percy Jackson analysis pod. Uh, and she identifies as a queer writer, an editor, creator, freelancer, podcaster, also a YouTuber. Like, kind of has, like, kind of a big deal here. So let's give a warm welcome to Fran. How are you today? How are you? I'm good, thank you. I, I've got to say, when you mentioned that, I have this whenever I've guested on things. I'm just like, well, I really, I really do a lot of things. And it kind of surprises me how many things I do sometimes. Yeah, there's a pretty long list there. That's like a <laughs> lot of commitment. Yeah, I, I thankfully I try to make time still for sleep because you know sleep is important, so that's yeah. you know, still a priority. We're gonna it's get like, to that. That's a pod. That's oh, a yeah. uh, episode later. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. So we invited you to join us, and you we've talked before offline, but can you just tell us just a little bit about your relationship with the avatar universe so that because other who's this percy jackson person coming on here to talk about avatar but what's your relationship with avatar yeah no of course so um alongside obviously percy jackson podcast my youtube channel i also do um avatar theory videos and like various different things like that i've taken a mini break from doing avatar content just uh a few things fandom related where I was like you know what I gotta take care of myself first because I'm it's getting a little heated people so I'm gonna need to chill for a little bit but um besides all of that like I've basically been obsessed with uh, Avatar since I randomly found an episode of it on uh, this British uh, channel called CITV which was like this children's entertainment channel it was I don't even remember what I think it was um one of the episodes, I think it was the the drill episode, oh, and I became obsessed with it <laughs> because this one particular scene with Ty Lee that just cracked me and my sister up, where she sees the dust cloud that Toph has made, and she's like, "It's so poofy, <laughs> poof," and it just killed us. Like just that moment of just poof, just it literally just died hysterically laughing, and then oh, every Saturday. So we were waking up to watch an episode of it. Never played in order. So I never actually saw Avatar The Last Airbender in order until probably six years after I just oh, like, wow. watched it on CITV. Around when I was watching Korra. So when Korra was airing, I was like, 
I know I know about Avatar and I basically know the entire story just very out of order. Mm-hmm. I should probably watch it in the correct order whilst I'm waiting for season two of Legend of Korra to air. Okay. Um, so technically Legend of Korra came first, but I knew everything about Avatar beforehand, just not in the correct way. So I was watching like random episodes from like book three and then it'd go to book one and then it'd go back to book three and then book two. It was chaotic, but still enjoyable. <laughs> What a fascinating way to kind of dive into the series, right? That's uh, so interesting. I, like, I I knew about it before I watched it, but I definitely started from episode one and just watched the whole thing chronologically. So, um, I'm, that's interesting. Yeah, it was um, it was definitely an interesting way to get involved in the series because, like, I was confused at some parts, but like that didn't matter at the end of the day because I was still mm-hmm. entertained. Um, and that's kind of the main thing about it is like as long as I was being entertained, I was happy, I was good. Yeah. And like, admittedly, some of the way in which the show works, you don't always have to kind of know everything like in sequence to understand it, except for you know some of the two parters or the episodes that follow on yeah. from each other. So it kind of it worked out in the end, and eventually, of course, I did see the whole thing in proper order. It just took a little bit longer. I could have watched it sooner. It just didn't click with me at the time. I just I enjoyed it the way in which I'd watched it that I yeah. didn't want to watch it the correct way. Sure. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I should probably do it now because I'm watching Legend of Korra the correct way. So yeah. I should probably do it for the original series too. Interesting. Well, that's so cool. And you do you have you said you do like theory videos? Did you have a a theory? Any one particular theory that you're like super passionate about? Oh, so there's one that I've, I I absolutely adore. I didn't do very well on my channel, but like I love the video itself. And it was basically this analysis of Cora's character in book two. Because like everyone seems to hate Cora in book two. I know. And I don't get it. I kind of do because sexism. But like, (laughs) (laughs) but there was something about her character that really spoke to me. And it was after I did this whole like deep dive video into um Cora's PTSD in the series and how it was mm. explored um and it made me realize that book two Cora is in the denial stage of trauma like she's mm. basically forgetting everything that's happened with Amon she's kind of going back to exactly how she was at the start but somehow worse but still has that trauma of how she felt in book one and all these sorts of situations going on with the mom so she's less trusting but she's still just as abrasive and she doesn't trust people who are close to her because you know she was burned before with you know yeah Tarlok no yeah Tarlok yeah yeah. I always get confused it's like no it's not Tonrock because that's her father but there's lots of T's and rocks yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) there sure are (laughs) that's Um, funny but it was something that like I really enjoyed uh, analysing about her character like everything about Cora in book two was her going through the stage of denial through her trauma and I definitely think that people struggle with trauma response and because when people are in trauma response what happens is we aren't our best selves right we, we are we are literally struggling to like get back to this homeostasis where we are fully balanced within ourselves. And I think that's what makes so many people uncomfortable about season two. And I don't think like people will always like attribute it. No, it was just a bad plot line, but it feels to me like it's way deeper than that. And I'm, I oh, think yeah. you're, you're speaking and put your, putting your finger on that really well. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So that kind of is an interesting segue because it really made me think about what we're about to talk about in a way. And so, you know, I, I offered you all of the guideposts as kind of a, a choice to choose from, and you chose this one. Can you yes. touch on, like, why did you choose this guidepost to to choose? Yeah, that's a good one. So I kind of wrote an answer on on the, on, the, on the document that we're looking at, and I realized I'm not happy with the answer that I originally put. Actually, <laughs> it's very now that I'm thinking about it more, it's very different to what I initially wrote down. Although kind of the same, I guess. Like, I think the main thing about it. So I am definitely someone who personally struggles a lot with going into this sort of numbness and like feeling powerless sort of situation, like um, and not realizing that I'm doing it. Like mm-hmm. these last three weeks I've like only discovered last week even though it'd been going on for two weeks prior that I was in a depressive state and mm. had absolutely no idea about it I was just like you know I'm just I'm just tired that's all it is like no 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 Fran it's called depression <laughs> um and I just had absolutely no idea because I was doing my usual thing of just working 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 doing my full-time job do my full-time podcasting, do my full-time YouTube, do my full-time freelance writing, do my full-time author writing, my full-time freelance editing, all these sort of things (laughs) that I do. Literally, literally so many things to block out the fact that I was, you know, really unhappy. Yes. Um, And it kind of like, it's one of those things that you go into your comfort sort of situations or finding things that make you happy in a sense to block out everything else and it's something that I always examine about because like Avatar and even Percy Jackson as well for my own podcast are things that are my comfort sort of like fictional media Mm -hmm. that also reflect exactly the same things that I go through myself of avoiding the situation leaning into things that are more enjoyable to help avoid the situations and I think that's kind of what led me to choose this one especially for like the the more positive side of it of like cultivating this like resilience for of being in a sense more positive and focusing more on the strengths of what you do in life instead of focusing fe- like fully on like failures and where you've gone wrong and feeling yeah. less than um which is also something i see a lot in like the avatar universe but also is something i'm trying to cultivate in my own life as well instead of just plowing myself with so much work that I'm just working and sleeping and doing nothing else. Yeah. Wow, that really resonates with me too, because it sounds like one of the ways in which you kind of choose to numb is through work, right? And and keeping Mm. busy. And that is absolutely my method as well. (laughs) Uh, It's not the only method that I utilize, but that is definitely um my number one numbing method is um, Mm. working and um just constantly being busy and it's a struggle for me because i intellectually understand that i am keeping myself busy but i'm like but i need to do all these things (laughs) um and so it's like this weird battle of like how do i let go how do i let go of some of these things Mm. that i'm holding on to with my dear life and I'm really excited to kind of dive into that with you as we talk about Avatar, right? Yeah. Um, 
So just for everybody who's listening, we are uh, covering some logistics. We are um, we are covering Guidepost 3, Cultivating Resilient Spirit, Letting Go of Numbing and Powerlessness. And that is in The Gift of Imperfection. It's um, pages 84 through 100 in the 10th anniversary edition. And then just as a, a you know signposting for next week, we'll be talking about Guidepost 4. Uh, you guessed it. And those are on pages 101 through 112. So I just wanted to get some logistics out of the way before we really dive into what we're talking about today, which is, uh, let, it, let's, can we dive into like the, what do we need to let go of first before we touch on resilience? So if we touch on like, what is numbing? What is powerlessness? And then we'll kind of um, dive into at the end, uh, ending on a positive note, uh, what, what we need to cultivate and work on. Um, maybe mm. it's not so positive. We have to work on it. Anyway, it's it's a practice. We're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna do our best. So, uh, let's talk about numbing. What is numbing? And I guess let's talk about it from the way that um, Brene kind of introduces it, right? And she kind of gives us these these three components, right? The first one is that most of us engage in numbing behaviors, right? Whether we are aware of it or not, we are engaging with it. Um, and so there's also this idea that numbing is often conflated with addiction. And Mm -hmm. so addiction can be described as chronically or compulsively numbing to take the edge off. And it's interesting because addiction, and most of the time when you think of addiction, I don't necessarily associate it with numbing, but when it's put into this frame, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we cannot selectively numb, (laughs) right? Uh, When we numb pain, we also numb the emotions that we desire. And so these are kind of three components. But when I kind of talk about numbing to you, Fran, I'm curious, what are the first things that come to mind um, in general when I say, like, what is numbing behavior for you? And not necessarily for you, but just that Mm. you think about numbing. I guess the way, like, the way I initially thought of it when, like, I, I initially kind of chose this and also kind of started looking into it a bit more, my initial thinking for numbing was literally just finding something to, like, numb yourself. So, like, doing some, like, you know when people say, like, you watch something mind-numbing, so, like, mm. like trash TV and stuff like that, things that you really, like, watching Riverdale, for example, so yeah. things like that, things that are, like, just pure trash that you can just kind of wipe your mind off to get into it so you can kind of take your mind off of other things because your mind is being so numbed by what is in front of you mm-hmm. that you're not really focusing on anything else. But then obviously going into it a little bit more, I was like, okay, that kind of half is, but it's that's like the very small part of it. Like it's a lot bigger than just finding it something just to kind of take your mind off of stuff. It's a little bit deeper than just that. Yeah. And the examples that Brene offers are like, a series of of options that can that can numb so like you know probably the people that think of this from an addiction standpoint very quickly are like drugs or alcohol but we can also numb with like all of these series of this whole list of like food sex relationships money work caretaking gambling staying busy us (laughs) affairs chaos shopping cleaning perfectionism which we talked about last episode constant change the internet Netflix, like all of these things that numb us, right? So I, I'm curious, 
before we kind of dive into any one of those in particular, I'd, I'd love to just ask the question, who numbs in the Avatar universe? And we're not going to be able to name everyone, but like, who are the, the first people that you think of when I say numbing, right? The, the main two that definitely came to my mind, well, the first one was Korra, mainly just because I love Korra. So like everything Korra is immediately on my mind in general. Yeah. yeah. But Korra herself is definitely one that came to my mind the most predominantly based on book one and book two. Because mm-hmm. like in book one, she's ashamed of her inability to be able to airbend and all these sort of things. So yeah. releases her frustration by focusing more on pro-bending, training for pro-bending, becoming friends with the pro-benders that she got was interested in, like Marco and yeah. and building that friendship. Or to take off the attention over her anxiety and frustration over not being successful at airbending. Um and it was it was an interesting thing that kind of like noticing that. Um as well as the fact that like she skips her class and even in book four as well, literally completely disappearing. Like mm. very literally removing herself entirely from the situation. Yeah, bye bye humans. Face anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodbye humans, Emily. I can kind of understand it. You know, people are kind of much sometimes. Yes. But I think I don't think I'd go as far as she did. <laughs> But like I can understand. The Shoot, I can totally see myself moment. doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like a good um, cabin in the woods, or the, not the like the horror kind, like the, yeah. the nice kind. Yeah, Henry David <laughs> Thoreau kind, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm interested that you brought up this this idea of pro bending, because I think what's going to happen is we're going to lift up several moments uh, for various examples, and I think we're going to hear a lot of. Um, people who could be like i didn't see that as numbing at all right Mm. and one could argue that you know her going into pro bending was oh no i i think she saw that as like this is a source of fun so this was the way that she you know let loose and got rid of the stress but it wasn't it wasn't numbing she was still blah 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 right and Mm. i think one of the things i'll just offer as kind of a caveat before we really kind of keep going and dive in is that I, I think there's beauty in the way that we kind of critique and analyze these things because I, I think it can be both and rather than it's not this, but it's only this. Uh, do, do you see it that way too? Or is that just me? No, I can see that too. Like there is definitely both ways that you can see of this situation. Like I, I can definitely see where people would come from of like, no, it was just, it was something fun for her to do. It wasn't necessarily about numbing frustrations. It was something enjoyable. Clearly she had fun and she yeah. found success with it as well. Like obviously getting that airbending technique down. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I can completely understand. Like there is two sides to every kind of analysis in a sense. And, and the way that I heard it described by one of Brene's books, I don't remember if I read it in this chapter or not. You can only remember if I did. But um, one of the things that happens is if we're numbing with food, for instance, and for chocolate, maybe, um, it's not necessarily numbing to enjoy that holy wafer of joy, right? And to put it in our mouths and eat that chocolate chocolate and savor it and love it and be like wow that was phenomenal right yeah, yeah, yeah versus like eating that chocolate and not being mindful and you're just eating it because you think that it will make you feel better and i i think that's kind of what separates like you know chocolate from being a helpful healthy wonderful thing to indulge in 
to something that is not necessarily serving us if we're not being mindful of what about it brings us joy. Mm. Um, does that make sense as an, as an example? Yeah, no, that does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the sort of best of both worlds situation with those sort of things. Like you can have like sort of the moderation of yeah. that sort of situation. Yeah, and, and again, that's different for every person. Like I could eat a lot of chocolate and savor every bite, but as long as I'm savoring every bite, right? If I'm eating it and I'm not really processing what about it brings me joy, that's when it can be considered a, a numbing behavior, right? Because mm. I'm yeah, if I'm yeah. eating it to avoid something else, right, then yeah, it's yeah. not necessarily serving us in the way that it could be. So mm. I, as we discuss all of these different scenes, I just want people to be mindful of what, what's your perspective? Because our perspective isn't always the right one. It's just a perspective, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And so now we can dive into any one of these things we want, knowing that that's caveat <laughs> providing like, oh, we're, I, you know, anyone can interpret that differently. Um, but yeah, I, I totally see the things you mentioned about Cora as definitely, especially the disappearing act, right? As like, I'm going mm-hmm. to avoid all of these feelings and uh, go disappear from people. And in a way that's helping her process, but in a way it's also a sense of, avoidance as well so yeah yeah, yeah. awesome did you have uh, another moment and you said i think you mentioned two right off the bat and um, you talked about cora another moment yeah so the other one and this is one that technically i wrote last but it's one that i thought of first but didn't mm-hmm. know how to word it so i wrote it last um and that is for karuk in uh specifically the shadow of kiyoshi um, spoiler alert yeah spoilers <laughs> um where uh, we learned that uh, Karuk was basically fighting the spirits in the spirit world and it was literally basically destroying his own spirit and very slowly mm-hmm. killing him. Um, and he could feel himself slowly dying. So to counteract that pain, he turned to drinking, to partying, to sleeping around with different women. I think he even mentions that he sleeps with different men because Rava is bisexual. Um, and... Um, and all of that was basically a sort of numbing process for the literal darkness and death engulfing him as he was fighting spirits and slowly dying in doing so. Yeah, no, I, I, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I didn't think of that example. <laughs> um, because it's just like so spot on because it's, mm. it, it's even described as I was just trying to take off the edge, of, take the uh, paint. Oh my God, I can't speak take the edge off of the pain that he was experiencing right and not not only physically but emotionally right because he was also struggling with again spoiler alert with you know not being able to enjoy his love life the way that he had wanted right he lost people that were special to him he never really got to fall in love and engage with you know heyron and so that there's there's a whole lot of things that he's just trying to not feel because he all he wants to do is spend his final years um in less pain <laughs> right yeah. and a lot of people judge him for that because they don't know the full story mm. which is a big yikes right and that kind yeah. of speaks speaks to a lot of things i think for us right is we often are judging people based off of only what we can see right and to use the mm. iceberg metaphor like we're only seeing like the top little tip of the iceberg when there's so much underneath the water that we can't see right and this is just mm. a really good example for Kuruk of um 
of that as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I think what was interesting about that additionally is that, and this is, I kind of, I guess half kind of going off topic, but I feel like, like Karuk is like this imagery of like how toxic masculinity can literally be damaging at the same time of him having to hide the very literal emotional pain and devastation that was being caused against him from every single person he cared about he couldn't share his burden with anyone and just had to keep it inside so no one else was hurt and it was just him hurting instead Um, I thought that was a really interesting sort of visual take on how hiding your emotions can literally kill you it's so interesting because the the main shame trigger for men um this is not necessarily universal but it is certainly the most common shame trigger for men is do not be perceived as weak Mm. and you know he chooses not to rely on his friends right and he chooses not to share the biggest burdens of his life with them in order to kind of not be perceived as as weak and Mm -hmm. instead it turned into this you know long standing perception of him as being (laughs) not necessarily weak physically but certainly weak of mind right and the people judging him based off of his like inability to you know handle uh the world and i just i just wonder if his narrative would have been just completely different had he been willing to be vulnerable with his mm. friends, you know? Yeah. Oof. All right. Well, we're certainly diving, diving in deep, huh? So, <laughs> um, okay. Well, you know, Kuruk's not the only one and we certainly Cora as well. Right. But I, I think there are also moments, especially in like we haven't talked about like Atla very much, too. But so with, with, with Aang, even where there is a sense of numbing. Um, and, and I think that, again, there are perceptions here where one could perceive Aang's adventures in the earlier seasons of um, like season one, where he's like, oh, we should go do all of these fun things. We're going to go. Uh, see the koi fish we're gonna go do this we're gonna go do that and see that as avoiding avoidance behavior right yeah. where i'm like i don't want to feel the hard things so i'm gonna go feel all the happy things and numb that negative feeling right mm. but you know we've talked about it before on the podcast where like no ang is like valuing play and ang is utilizing these things that are helping him get through the hard things um so again there's that balance of like what is our perception and how do we dive in? And I think the answer is how is Aang perceiving these moments? Is Aang doing this to avoid or is Aang doing this to enjoy? Right? Because I think that's yeah. what separates it. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like he's a sort of character where it's a little bit of both in the sense of his character. Like he definitely has moments like he does like we see it, I think it's the second episode he mentions like he never wanted to be the avatar yeah like we know from the get-go that he doesn't want this so there is this clear and like i think it's literally the next episode um oh no not the next episode because that's the Agiatso. although it, technically then like he goes to play airball when he gets to yeah. the temple like he's instinctively like going towards fun and then i think there's like an episode or two later they're doing the koi fish situation like it's 
consistently like he sees something traumatic the next episode like almost immediately the next episode they are then going on to a fun adventure mm-hmm. and it's almost like this sort of see something traumatic pretend in a sense that it hasn't happened and go and do something enjoyable so you can focus yeah. on that and numb the pain from that situation and i think what you're putting your finger on is that numbing is really complicated because how we numb often serves us and serves the world really well yeah and so for us when we are using busy as our numbness the things we're Mm. busy with are contributing to society they're exercising our creativity they are helping people who want to listen to the podcast listen to the podcast and enjoy things like when I stay busy with work and take on more projects, I am helping the people that I am serving through my work. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that again, it is not that our numbing behavior, the behavior itself is bad, right? Caregiving is a, is a, a, something that was on the list of things that like you can numb through caregiving. Yes. Right. We can numb through things that are inherently good. And, Mm -hmm. It is, again, how we approach those things and whether that is a crutch for us. And if we become addicted to it, then we, again, are we are numbing the bad, but we're also numbing the good, right? Mm. And a really good example of that is Aang running away from Monk Gyatso, and then he numbs for 100 years in an iceberg, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. He doesn't oh God, feel do anything for 100 years, right? Yeah. He, he numbed the bad. Right. He didn't feel anything bad, but he also didn't feel anything good for a hundred years. Right. Like, oh, oh, it's it's hard because numbing is not great. But often we talk ourselves into the behaviors that we use to numb. Right. And that's why numbing is so complicated. Mm. So you've kind of dived, dived, divin, dove into these I always get stuck on that one. Um, your experience with numbing a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious, can you, can you um, elaborate just a little bit so that we can kind of um, put our fingers on some examples from some, from real world? Mm. Um, I guess the most recent example I can think of is, uh, so, uh, well, I've recently quit my job and the anxiety of that and like going into something like I'm going into being an author full time for the next year and a half Wow! and I'm at this state where I'm like I'm really excited about it but the absolute terror and fear of like have I made this terrible mistake has snuck up on me and I've not been aware of it which has led to like this depressive state that I've been in and this pure exhaustion of like the fact that to cover up this fear that I'm very slowly feeling of like, have I made a mistake? Was this a bad idea? Am I actually good enough to do this full time and stuff like that? Yeah. Has led to me sleeping an average of four hours a day because I'm getting up to work sooner, to work later on writing, to work later on editorial services for other people, to create more content for YouTube, to get ahead of my podcasting like I recorded four months in advance for my current podcast so I could get ahead and keep recording episodes so there'd be more content for other people Wow! and just kept going four months ahead (laughs) honestly it was it was both like a good idea but like 
I put so much on like my weekends I had no time for rest I was waking up at seven eight o'clock on weekends I hadn't had a lie-in first time I had a lie-in was when I got my second COVID jab and I slept for 14 hours after yeah. getting the, the, the day after and I hated myself for being asleep for such a long period of time because I was like I should have been doing this I should have been doing that I should have been etc etc all these things that I should be doing and when my mum told me you know you can have a break I responded with I can't though because I have to prove to myself that what I'm doing is the right decision and it was saying that made me realize I've been basically forcing myself to keep working all these creative things to convince myself that you know I haven't made a terrible mistake that like look I am competent I can do this as like a full-time situation that I was basically working six full-time jobs for the last month and a half yeah and was not aware of it at all or to kind of numb out this fear and anxiety of leaving a full-time paying job to go into a creative industry that isn't a guarantee yeah and had basically a big break um not not a good thing obviously to get to that point where you kind of you know the the coke bottle analogy of like everything is just building building up until you it kind of pops yeah um but thankfully i was got to aware i was aware of it just before a possible pop and basically have done nothing all this week done no writing except for yesterday um haven't done any youtube content because i've recorded all my podcast stuff in advance haven't done any podcast recording like i'm taking that time to just rest for the next two weeks other than obviously doing my current job that i'm still having to do on weekdays um but even then people at work have been helping me with a few things here and there because i've said i may need a little bit of help thank you (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but that was uh that was a big thing of just literally a very recent numbing experience that i was just not aware of for a very long period of time yeah wow it's such a, a, a poignant example because I I find that we are so unaware of when we're doing it often, right? And I, I think part of what we'll learn today, uh, and we'll get to it at the end, like the, the things we have to let go of, but also the things we need to start doing in order to cultivate resilience is this this idea of reality checking, right? And it's like, yeah. oh, oh, I do, I do need rest, right? And it's mm-hmm. like letting ourselves like grapple with the fact that we are finite bodies that need to um, respect the boundaries of those bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I think that's a thank you for sharing that with us and helping us kind of see a, a real life example because it's hard and we're all kind of mm-hmm. grappling with this, right? And I, I I think one of the things I appreciate about this chapter is Brene offers us, offers us some questions to ask of ourselves um, to kind of understand, is this, is this numbing, right? And so whatever our behavior is, you can ask this yeah. question. Uh, does our uh, blank behavior get in the way of our authenticity? That's the first. The second is, does it stop us from being really honest and setting boundaries and feeling like we are enough? And then the third uh, question is, does it keep us from 
staying, staying out of judgment and from feeling connected. And then lastly, are we using this behavior to hide or to escape from the reality of our lives? And so these are the questions that are kind of offered for us if, if we are curious whether our behavior is numbing or beneficial in helping us, we can kind of ask these questions. And again, mm. I think the answer can be both. It can be helpful yeah. and it can take us out of our authenticity. It can be helpful and it can put us into judgment, right? And so again, sometimes it requires that we just ask ourselves these questions to kind of like get started and then we might need to go see a therapist to help us finalize <laughs> yeah yeah um again ab- advocating for our personal mental and emotional health so mm. um yeehaw. okay i'm ready to move on to powerlessness are you ready to kind of dive into powerless now powerless yeah i'm now? good to go we feel we are feeling the power full enough to to move on <laughs> but inch um <laughs> So again, powerlessness is kind of described as the inability to affect change, right? To put it into the simplest terms. And so I'm, I'm curious um, about times where we've kind of talked about numbing now. What's it, do you have a time where you have experienced powerlessness? Um, I guess in states of like, um, like when I have a panic attack and like you, that mm. momentary of like, this fear of um i had one quite recently no idea where it came from there was nothing that happened that day that would lead to it it was just a very sudden onset panic attack where i wasn't able to like properly feel like i could breathe for about half an hour and had to call my mother who was downstairs cleaning in the living room for my phone she was heard like the anxiety attack happening over the phone came up and basically had to hold me whilst I was going through it and it was the most terrifying thing because I'm the sort of person that I don't like relying on other people because I feel like yeah it's (laughs) one of those things just like this immediate fear of like if I rely on someone else if I end up alone what do I do then yeah um and uh it was just it was an awful experience of just not knowing how to get out of this panic attack trying to use all these things that I've been taught in the various years of therapy that I've been in finding none of them of use at all and then ending up having to rely on someone else it was just the most powerless i've ever felt in like the most recent period of time but there's been many throughout the years um because being a woman being gay there's a lot of there's a lot of crap out there that can lead to further things but uh, that's the most recent one wow and uh i'm hearing from you that 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 sense of powerlessness kind of emerged from this and please correct me if i'm i'm wrong or if i'm reaching but i'm i'm hearing this sense of there was nothing i could do and i had to rely on others and in in a sense like i i don't see a way out of this um and so in a way that stemmed from like a lack of hope Right? a lack of hope there was no hope for being able to get out of this and so mm. i felt powerless am i am i reaching there how does that resonate that, with you that does sound about right like there was um especially a lack of like 
hoping my me being able to do it myself like initially like i didn't call my mother like i messaged a bunch of friends on like discord servers saying send me gifts of kittens and dogs just something to distract me um and i hated doing that firstly but that was like five ten minutes in i was like okay nothing's working maybe seeing some cats will work um and it just like it kind of continued from there so there was this this hope of if I can't help myself, maybe they can. And when they couldn't, having to rely on someone more physically there yeah. um, was this like hopelessness of I can't do this myself, yeah. um, and the fear of not being able to do do that. Like this basic thing that in my mind, and I guess most people's minds, of like you should be able to help yourself. Yeah. Like you should be able to get yourself out of these situations if necessary, because um, it's very much like the way in which the world kind of works it tells you that you know you need to be individual you need to be an yeah. individual you've got to be able to work things out yourself you can't always rely on people it's interesting because that's a very western thought uh yes. like i i i think therefore i am in the descartes realm and it's it's me and the individual and the self and we're all we're individually focused whereas like when you go east like instead like there's an uh, african proverb that's i am because we are right there's mm. a sense of connectedness and community and uh it's completely different it's very relational like the self is relational before it is individual rather than mm. <laughs> in the western world it's like me 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 um and yeah. this this drive and need to be independent and that just doesn't exist in the same way in other cultures and i i mm. i I think that it's more prone to feelings of powerlessness because we are we are so much less likely to ask for help because of this mm. need for independence. We're so much less likely to show weakness because if I show weakness, it's a you know a form of me being unable to help myself, and that's shaming, right? There, there there's so many things that are tied to it, and. Uh, what as I kind of say these things, what how does that resonate with you? What are what are what are you thinking about as I say those things? Like it makes sense to me. Like I know this is something that um like this. Uh, oh God, I'm just thinking of the film. Um, I think it's called The Farewell, like that Aquafina film, um, where like her and her family who are living in America travel back to China because her grandmother um has uh cancer and is supposedly dying but they don't tell her because it's the responsibility of the family to carry that burden because the hope is and the belief is that if they don't know that something is killing them that maybe it won't kill them too quickly like the not knowing will save them and keep them alive longer um and it was like a really interesting way of thinking about things like that definitely wouldn't happen here like it's like that wouldn't even be a consideration here of family keeping that burden yeah. for themselves and allowing um, whoever is unwell to live a fuller life of being happier until the last yeah. moments um, like that would be considered like basically not not I was going to say blasphemous that's not the right word <laughs> it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be considered almost like it's not the right word but border, like quote unquote unkind and cruel to do yeah. so of keeping that from a family member whereas really it's the kinder thing to do is mm. to allow them to be happy for as long as they can be and just keeping that 
that yeah. burden yourself so you're carrying it for them and i mean you know that's there's a lot of people that would very much debate that right and it's it's interesting because you know ultimately what is kind is i i think dependent upon the person that we are engaging with right what's what is more mm. kind to withhold this thing or to share it with them so that they can process it or what is more kind like it, there's a lot of schools a lot of different schools of thought on that so mm. it's pretty fascinating to consider like you know that and i think that's one of the things why you know we have to always be constantly aware of context right and yeah. and our our specificities and our particularities and our experiences drastically affect how we engage and process the world and we have to be mindful that other people process things differently <laughs> right and that's, yeah, yeah, so yeah. In, any one way of doing things is uh like laughable to think that there's only one way um so yeah i, I just I'm, I'm grateful that you're you're lifting that up because it's kind of pointing us towards that mm. so we've kind of talked about a little bit of powerlessness in our lives. Now I kind of want to bring it into the avatar verse, right? So what moments for you come to mind when the, the idea of powerlessness comes up in the avatar verse? Um, I was going to bring up another Cora moment, but I feel like I talk about Cora a lot. So I'll, I'll bring I love it. it. <laughs> um, I think I'll mention one from the, the Kyoshi books and it's particularly this one quote from Yang, I think it's Yang Chen that it comes from, um, and it is, uh, you must give up your desire for someone to tell you your choices were correct in the end. And it's this moment where like Kyoshi is basically seemingly convinced that like there is no positive change that she can make, like she's sort of in a sense, and this is the thing that I love about it, like the Kyoshi books made the Korra series so much better in my opinion, because yes. they're quite similar in how they're treated in their stories and how they're treated by like the society in that series as well um like kiyoshi has to put on this image of basically being what she's considered to be in the avatar fandom the people who haven't read the books of being a stone-cold murderer someone yeah. who will kill on sight whereas that is not the kind of person she is she doesn't want to be that person it is a facade um and she questions every decision that she makes she's never sure if she's making the right one yeah. and like um, spoilers for Shadow of Kyoshi for example um, she believes that Yun can change and that he's just being in a sense manipulated by the spirit he's controlled by the spirit um, but of course she turns out to be wrong and she nearly loses everyone that she cares about because she trusted in someone that she once knew um, and I think it's like a huge moment for her where like this hopelessness and this powerlessness where someone who is incredibly powerful like Yun comes and shows her that she isn't as good as she believes and that you know she's failed she is a failure she doesn't deserve to be the avatar yeah. she should have been the avatar all these sort of things and in this moment with Yang Chen saying you know you have to give up this desire for someone to tell you that you were correct because you're never going to get that yeah. as long as you believe that you yourself are correct and that you have made the right decision for you mm. that is the most important thing that's so like i'm getting chills because that speaks to so many different things around all of the guideposts in general where like when we 
I, I find that whenever I'm seeking external validation, mm. I am, I, I, I usually know the right answer. I just don't want to, to either trust my instinct or I am like, and, and it's, and it's often I'm seeking external validation for, for my own personal choices. Like, mm. oh, should I, should I pursue a music singing career or should I go work at, at the YMCA and do summer camp work? Should I like, and I'm like, Oh, somebody should tell me the answer. And what, what, every time I asked someone, I would get, um, really beautiful feedback and it wouldn't make it any easier. <laughs> like it, like it, the answer was never made easier with these really difficult questions because it was ultimately something that I had to lean into and answer myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so when Yang Chen says this, it's like, oof. That sucks <laughs> because what it's what it's saying is that we have to cultivate this this idea that we have to let go of this idea that there's someone that has the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, in the in the world of of Avatar, it's like, oh, I can ask all these previous avatars, and they're heralded as the greatest of their time and they have all the answers when really they're just human beings that you know have a few extra bending abilities and they're Mm. fallible and they don't have the answers and like no one source is you know god in which we can get all of the answers and to believe otherwise is to believe that you know people are godly in a way (laughs) yeah um which is Putting people on that kind of a pedestal is really dangerous. Definitely. Ugh. So a moment for me that comes up when I think of powerlessness is, you know, and I, I asked the question on Twitter and it was, this was the first one that came up and I was like, yep, that's, that's definitely some powerlessness is when the gang loses Appa mm. in Atla. And so, you know, they're, you know, doing their best to get the information they need from Wan Tong in the library. And Toph is holding up a giant city <laughs> for a library by one tower's worth of, of earthbending. And what happens is Aang gets out and Toph, and Toph has been hurt and Appa is gone. And Aang just is like, oh, no, no. Because what he has is he has this ample amount of, of power, right? He has the ability to enact change and affect change immensely because of his prodigious skill. But in this moment, this is a moment where we see that he is powerless because there is nothing that he can do. And for that whole episode, we see the whole next episode, we see him grapple with that powerlessness where he gets angry he starts like no i can do this and he's gonna go and do things and he eventually comes to terms with like no there's nothing i can do and it stems from like oh i have power i have hope i can do this i can save appa then he goes and looks for him can't find him oh hope diminished then he's like no i can do this hope diminished oh there's appa just kidding it's a cloud hope diminished and as this hope reduces and reduces and reduces, the powerlessness scales up every time he loses more hope, right? 
And so I, I think there's, it's really important to kind of highlight this relationship between our perceived understanding of whether we can make change and our understanding of what hope is and how hope works. Um, does that make sense? Am I, am I, am I just talking? No, no, you make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, in terms of what happened in the episode as well, it makes sense that like the more he's losing hope, the more powerless he starts to feel. Which leads to that final confrontation, obviously, at the end of the episode, where it's it's like the again, like I mentioned, like the coke bottle situation. Like, yeah, his hopelessness has been dropping, his powerlessness has been has been rising, and it all just comes to a head the moment where he can use his powers because of all this rage and anger and hopelessness that has just been building, and he just lets loose because yeah. there's nothing else he can do. Well, and and I think that there are like three phrases that come to mind that are like forms of powerlessness that people say one is oh it's it's all my fault i it's my fault i did it and i can't change anything it's all my fault and there's nothing i can do right and so mm. like it's all my fault then the second one is it's all their fault right there's nothing i can do because like they did it it's their fault and so when we blame right <laughs> All of a sudden, that's, that is a form of powerlessness. We are shifting the culpability, responsibility, accountability onto someone else, right? Yeah. And then the, the next one is that it's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do about it. Where it's like, it's not anybody's particular fault, but it's like, I'm, I'm so outside and removed from the situation that it's like, oh, there's, there's nothing I can do. I'm so sorry. It's like the random, you know, retail employee being like, oh, that's, that's, it's you know corporate's decision it's out of my hands there's nothing i can do right yeah and those are kind of like three like taglines for powerlessness in my mind um are are there any moments for you that arise and i guess this might be one of our last uh examples for powerlessness but are, are there any of those that kind of stick out for you from the avatar verse or and if not that just another moment of powerlessness um Cora definitely has a lot. I feel like when you said it's all my fault, it's like, I swear I've heard Cora say that at some point in the show, or at least something to that effect, because, like, that was a big thing about Cora. And also, like, her not saying it, but people saying it's all her fault. Like, people. Yes. People blaming Cora, like, all day long. Yeah. Right. And, and that's not even on the show. That's just the fandom. Yeah. On the show, it's just as bad. <laughs> So it's both on the show and in the fandom that Cora is getting all of the blame for all the situations. Like she's blamed for the loss of the past lives. Literally not her fault. Yep. You know, if anything, if you want to blame someone that isn't the villain, because apparently people don't like to blame villains, you can technically blame Bolin and Mako. They had one yeah. job, keep the twins out. They couldn't manage it. Nope. And them nope. getting in is the reason why Cora was distracted because she was then getting hit on all sides. No, it's Cora's fault. She's the avatar. She should be able to deal with it. Yeah. And yeah. It's just it's things like that where I'm just like, you know, but you're missing the main context of that situation of what led up yeah. to it. It's also what I'm perceiving to be, and I'm just now coming to terms with this. Like people are giving Cora a competency tax, where because she's the avatar and because she has more skill, she is being taxed at a higher rate right mm. and it's <laughs> it's the same premise as when you know someone who is you know better at their job 
does like yeah. they get more work assigned to them because they're better at it than the people who aren't as good. So rather than holding accountable the people who aren't good at their job and making them like come up to standard, instead we're taxing the people who are good by making it harder for them because they're good at it. Um, yeah. In the same way, we are. It feels like we're doing that with our criticism and judgments of Cora, right? Oh, She's yeah. incredibly competent and capable, and because of it, we are judging her way harder. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I know Mike and Brian have talked about it. Like they were surprised at how much the fans didn't let Cora get away with making mistakes. Yeah, in comparison yeah. to Ang, like. If you, I think someone made a tally, but they made a tally of the mistakes that each of, like, both Cora and Aang made that led to problems. And Aang made more mistakes in his series than Cora did. Yep. But most of those mistakes aren't given the same level of attention as the mistakes that Cora's made. Um, and it's just, it's kind of crazy. But, um... Yeah, there's lots of situations like that of like her saying, yeah, there's nothing I can do. People saying it's all her fault. And yeah. even her in some sense saying it's all my fault. And it's the without same kind thing. of saying those exact words. It's the same thing with like the spirit portal as well. Like, and it was in the comics when people are like President Raiko won, but also some of the spirits were like, no, it's your fault this is happening. And like, like there's no, um, there's no accountability. So again, I just, I think one of the questions that is emerging for me from this conversation is that when we find ourselves blaming, whether we're blaming ourselves or we're blaming uh, someone else directly or we're blaming like the powers that be that are, quote, mm. beyond our control, then what we're doing is we're shifting the blame and we're accepting this idea that we have no ability to enact change and we are saying mm. I'm powerless, right? Yeah. And, and we have to we have to begin to let go of that. And so what I want to do now is kind of dive into how do we do that, right? Yeah. And the way that Brene kind of gives us, uh, the way she offers us a chance to do that is to cultivate this idea of resilience. And mm -hmm. so I, I kind of want to go into these five factors of resilience that she lists and then kind of um, see what you have to offer and see if there's any uh, moments that speak to us in terms of characters that do this well. Um, so these five factors, um, one, people who have resilience have these in common. They are resourceful and have good problem solving skills. So they're able to solve problems. They're able to be, use their resources. Uh, two, they're more likely to ask for help, right? They're not, and that's directly speaking to what we were talking about earlier, right? They are more likely to hold the belief that they can do something that will help manage their feelings and cope. So they have this emotional uh, awareness, right? Mm. Four, they have social support. So again, not that individual mindset, but that relational mindset of people mm. that are in their corner that are helping supporting them. And then five, again, leaning on the same thing, they're connected with others, such as friends and family. So... After hearing these things, and you read the chapter as well, but what are the, how does that make you feel? Because it makes me feel like, like I'm, I hear those things, I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> because I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I have all these things that I don't do really well. But what are your thoughts as you hear these? Yeah, when I was reading these, I was like, I think I, I do one of these things, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't always do it. 
so it's an infrequent use of uh, in this case number two so more likely to seek help like i seek therapy whenever i like when i know that i need it um but there are times where like i wait a little bit longer it's like oh i'll just wait and see and then it's like well that was a terrible decision (laughs) the moment you thought i should probably go to therapy you should have called and tried to set up to go to therapy instead of like we'll wait two months see what happens no 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 you don't put a pause on when you should go see a therapist if you're in that mindset of i should probably be seeing a therapist yeah um but uh yeah so i that's the only one that i kind of occasionally do um but yeah i was definitely that so oh, god's sake i don't do many of these and that is not a good sign um i think it's definitely one of those things i feel like especially like for our generation like we have we like pick and choose between these like we don't keep consistently one or all of them like we have one we won't keep up with it we'll have another one won't keep up with that have another like we we go between them all but never all at once yeah yeah like yeah like for example some people have a lot of social support for a long period of time like um whilst i was like people at uni you build like this really close bond you're with each other all the time once you leave uni that breaks away almost immediately because you're from different areas usually um seeking help kind of easy to do depending on where you are as well like obviously in the u.s therapy can cost so it's not always something that is available to every person yeah um in the uk health like uh, mental health services are more available but the waiting lists are really long so it's not something that's as immediate so you then are just kind of waiting for that which means you aren't continuing to seek help through other ways you're then just kind of waiting for that to happen later on yeah um i think it's just a thing that a lot of people do now just because it's just it's like that whole thing of like um oh god what's the phrase um that's something the grind or the hustle oh the hustle culture that's it Mm. of like just working working so much and kind yep. of doing as many things as possible because that's kind of the only way to live in this current society yeah um which leads to a lack of these like factors of how to be like healthier and in a sense better as a person yeah. for yourself and for others because there's no real way to do it with ease yeah and it's interesting because i i, I mean again I think of Cora when we talk about this, but specifically mm-hmm. I, I think of the difference between season one Cora and season four Cora. And yeah. you know, Cora went through a lot. Like like capital A lot. <laughs> and um I I think that she learned a lot too because of that. And I yeah. think that season four Cora is way more likely to lean on her support system. I think season four Cora is way more likely to ask for help. I think season four Cora is more connected to her, to others, to family, to friends, right? It's Cora yeah. is, is more emotionally aware, right? And so all of these things are contributing and, and stemming from her learning. And I am, what I am not suggesting is that we all have to have this life changing trauma event or rather series of trauma events in order to cultivate these things. But what yeah. I am saying is that she like was put into a crucible of having to learn these things in order to survive in order to be in order to thrive later on she had to go through these and that's really scary because i i I don't want people to believe that 
they have to have these terrifying things happen to them in order to achieve resilience, right? Mm. In order to be resilient, you do not have to, you know, resil. <laughs> uh, you don't have to like go through these things in order to practice what will make you resilient. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, if those are the most common factors, I kind of want to ask that, or, or kind of dive into the three things. These are the three practices that Brene Brown suggests in order to cultivate resilience. And this will kind of be our, our, our close to the, to the end of our conversation. Um, but the, the patterns of resilience, right, that we want to start practicing and so that we can build this as a skill, mm. right, in order to cultivate it. The first one is we've been dancing around this whole time is cultivating hope, right? Yeah. Because if powerlessness and hopelessness are conflated with one another, then we need to be able to practice hope in, in order to cultivate this idea of I have power to enact change. So mm. when, when I say that, or what, what do you think of? What, is, um, what are ways or what are characters that, that do hope really well that we can learn from? I think for me, and this may be one that surprises people because people don't think much of his character as a whole in the series. That would be Bolin for me in, Ooh, in Legend of Korra. Okay, tell me more. Um, so the reasoning behind it is that Bolin for me is like the glue, <clears throat> the glue of the group of the new team avatar in Legend of Korra. He's the one who helps basically helps Cora feel more confident in herself like that moment where obviously that whole love triangle situation really messy really awful but he was still kind <laughs> to her at the end saying you like you know you're you're still a great person like you're still awesome yeah. like you're Cora um and he continues to be like that throughout he does the same thing with Mako when Mako is about to make that sacrifice at the end of the series like you know you don't need to prove how awesome you are, you are. i know you're awesome <laughs> Yeah. Um, and basically be and even going with Asami to like uh, the Varric ship like him being that supporting presence for her he is someone who is continuously hopeful and caring of others that he helps instill a sense of hope into them whilst also having it himself because he is he's one person who I think is very hopeful as a person like he yeah. joins Kuvira because he thinks Kuvira is making change and being someone who is bringing a new sense of hope to the yeah. Earth Kingdom obviously misguided but his heart was in the right place like he was seeing the good they were doing and was helping with it by instilling this new hope in the people who had lost so much i would say uh, another fairly concrete example of of hope um being tied to power is this moment where bowen realizes that he's a lava bender right he yeah, is yeah. he is cornered he is like he could go into hopeless mode and be like there's nothing i can do but in, instead, he's like, I'm going to step in front of this wall of lava and do see what I can do. Now, that's a very, like, <laughs> high-risk situation. And, like, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying that we should all, like, oh, let's, let's you know, step in front of lava. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that Bolin does it, and it shows that his hope reveals his power. Mm. Right? And so I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's just a really good example that I, I thought of as you were speaking. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good example as well. Um, it definitely shows like he was willing to risk it all as well, out of hope that something would happen so he could save the people that he cares about. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
Okay. And, and, and I think another like obvious hopeful person is Katara. And I think about <laughs> like Katara is like always being like, Oh, but look what we can do together. And there are so <laughs> many, so many speeches of hers that kind of speak to that. So, yeah. um, I, that's just a, a, a low hanging fruit when it comes, when it comes to hope. Okay. The second thing that we want to practice is critical awareness is is the term that Brene uses and critical awareness again for those of you who didn't necessarily read the chapter is like reality checking being mindful about the realities of the world and Mm. checking our stories with the the with reality right and so for instance if I'm saying like uh I think about beauty standards is the most common thing to reality check, like reality Mm -hmm. checking like the magazine covers and the people in film and being like, that's not what normal people look like. (laughs) Right. Um, And, and so that's, that's one way we can practice critical awareness, but I'm curious, um, Fran, for, for you, when you think about who does this and again, in the avatar verse, do you, is anyone come to mind that you can think of that, uh, is really good at reality checking the situation. I think for me that may actually. So I initially wrote down Cora, but I think actually the main person I can think of is Rangi from the Kyoshi novels. Like I feel Ooh. like she's someone who grounds a lot of the reality that's going on, um, but also brings Kyoshi back to reality of like the importance of certain things. Like there is this moment that. I don't know if many people consider this to be like a reality checking moment, but it's one that I personally kind of do in the sense that it it feels important, like it's clearly important for the reason you're doing it, and that's Kyoshi having to learn the elements in the correct order that she is meant to. Yeah. There is a scene where she started learning waterbending, but she wasn't meant to be learning waterbending at this point, she was meant to be learning airbending before she even attempted waterbending. And Rangi basically took it upon herself to show her airbending techniques that she had learnt at the academy which was a very interesting hint for how the fire nation were able to you know do what they did of like they literally analyzed every single nation and how they fought and what they did but she taught kiyoshi in a sense how to use airbending moves because the reality of the situation was that it, even though it is a traditional thing to follow it in the order, there is a reason for it. And it's similar to like how Ang learnt fire before he learnt earth. And obviously that went terribly Didn't wrong. Didn't go great, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's a sign of like, you should learn it in the correct order because there is a reason for it. And I don't necessarily, I admittedly personally, I do believe that there is a sort of like a curse, be- no, not like a curse, but there is, a consequence for not doing it the correct way like there is a reason why you are learning it in this order mm-hmm. and that's because that is the way in which it should be done um but as a whole i feel like rangi is the person who grounds kiyoshi's story like she brings to reality like you know morality is important having morals is important she tries to convince like she's the person who keeps kiyoshi on the side of morality and yeah and not becoming a killer because she could mm-hmm. um it's very much that sort of last resort situation and that was brought to her by rangi of death is only a last resort it should never be a first thought 
Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing about Rangi's character. She is like a, a short ball of like anger and rage, but she's very, very realistic in how she thinks about the world. Yeah. No, I think that's great. That's, those are, that's a great example. So the next one is the easiest one for sure, which <laughs> is letting go of numbing and taking the edge off vulnerability, discomfort, and pain. And I wish it were as simple as saying, oh, I'm just going to let go now. I, oh, I, I'm just going to stop numbing, and that'll be it, right? But, but that, that doesn't work well, right? We, we can't just, like, selectively be like, oh, I'm done. Like, some of us have the capacity to do that, but, like, man, I, I, I do not. Which is why the, I think the term cultivate is used, like, cultivating yeah. resilience, rather than saying, like, be resilient. Uh, here are the five ways to be resilient like there's a reason it's not written that way we have to Mm. cultivate it we have to build it up we have to practice it so that we can become more rather than just do right it's not something that's like we we are either doing it or not doing it it's something that we are like slowly um, bringing it and weaving it into our lives to where it's more present right so again um, if we kind of circle back to this idea of these three things, cultivating hope, cultivating critical awareness, and then letting go of numbing, what I'd like to do is, like, let's talk about, like, how to actually cultivate those things. And I want to do that, and uh, just for time frame references, probably, like, let's, let's give ourselves 10 minutes to dive into that before we dive into our, our ending segments. Um, does that sound okay with you? Yeah, yeah, that works for me. All right. So let's let's dive into like hope and like what are the practices and things that we can do in order to start building more hope into our lives so we can be more resilient. Um, so, you know, Renee gives us some examples, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to dive in and see what we can learn from the Avatar verse from these people. So the first one is, setting realistic goals um so like i'm I'm curious for you there's a lot of like goal setting i think that happens in the avatar verse but i'm curious what uh, moments of that comes up for you um the one that was kind of like a secondary thought that kind of became more of a big thought for me was the moment where zuko confronts his father during like the day of black sun oh okay Um, because uh, I feel like it was clearly a moment that was like it was leading up to that moment that he needed to confront his father. Like it mm-hmm. was a goal for him to basically tell Ozai, you know, this is what you have done to me. You have lied to me. That country has lied to me and to our entire people. And basically get all of this that he's clearly been building up since he was a child off his chest for yeah. him to be able to leave without having any regrets about not saying anything. Yeah. So Zuko set a goal of I need to have a conversation with with Ozai, right? Okay. So I, I think that's important, and I think that'll play well into the the next part of what hope is, right? One, hope happens when we can set realistic goals. Two, mm-hmm. when we are able to figure out how to achieve those goals. So including the ability to be flexible when something happens, right? To develop mm-hmm. alternative routes. So that, that kind of, again, that problem-solving skill that was described earlier. So mm. that p- kind of plays well within your example, 
um, with the day of Black Sun, right? Because like you know, Ozai's a, a bender that's like got some you know he's pretty powerful. He's considered the most powerful firebending master of his time, and it's one of those things where Zuko's not <laughs> like yeah. he he's certainly talented, but he's he's not as he's not the most powerful firebender. Mm-hmm. So it seems like how do I confront Ozai in a way that's not going to give me another scar? And this day of black sun is like showing his like, you know, innovation and ability to like, Oh, this is, this is the moment when I can do this. Right. And so that kind of gave him this, this capacity to have that conversation. Um, What are your thoughts on that? No, I I agree. I think it, it also shows the side of like this intelligence that Zuko has that like, yeah, if I want to have this, because I need to have this conversation with my father, I need to do it in a way that I will be safe. Yeah. And making sure it's on the day of Black Sun where neither of us have the ability, and he obviously he has his sword as well, just in case. Like he has like an additional backup in case something further happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it was a smart it was a smart decision. Like he has this alternate route of literally no fire bending weapons as a further backup and then also being prepared for when the time came like obviously when ozai did then lightning bend at him he was prepared for that also um so he had so many things like this sort of thing of like staying flexible and developing these alternate routes he had all of that ready just in case and was prepared for each of those each of those moments yeah wow Okay, so those are the first two. Hope it happens when we have the ability to set realistic goals, when we can figure out how to achieve those realistic goals, including being flexible and developing alternative routes when obstacles appear. And then three, believing in ourselves, right? We have Mm -hmm. to believe in ourselves and we have to be able to, um, like, in a way, um, when we set that goal and we figure out how to achieve it we have to believe that we can achieve it and that's something that's mm. um a little it seems pretty nuanced to me to be able to be like oh i believe in myself right because that in and of itself feels like paradoxically like hope right mm. um and so one of the things that i really love one of my favorite quotes is that hope is a function of struggle right hope it occurs and is cultivated and builds when we are able to successfully navigate struggle, right? Mm. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and I think it's important to under, understand that hope is, it happens in the context of other people, right? And, and yeah. that's something that Brene kind of points to is that in order to cultivate hope, we have to be in relationship with other people. We learn hopefulness and in 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 that sense it suggests that we need relationships right and we need relationships that have boundaries we need uh consistency we need support and when we have those things it shows us that we can make it through we have we can make it through these these moments of struggle right Mm. so i'm curious for you what are the moments that you see relationships in this in this avatar verse where there are boundaries there is consistency there is support because i think if we find those spots we might be able to find some hope as well 
Mm. I think the main ones, and this is probably going to be both a surprise and not a surprise, is through most of the romantic couples that we see in mm. in the Avatarverse. So Kyoshi and uh, Rangi, um, like I, I mentioned previously, like Rangi sort of being Kyoshi's boundary set. Like she she knows Kyoshi's limits, even if Kyoshi doesn't know them at times, and, and is able to kind of help build that. I think it's also the same for Asami and Korra. Like Asami yeah. knew exactly what Korra needed. She needed someone to be near for her. She needed someone who didn't, in a sense, talk down to her or focus on the things that she was, in Korra's mind, quote-unquote, failing at. And just be that someone to talk to and build that relationship with and know exactly what she wanted and needed. Um, and just being that supportive presence like obviously Asami was that person who was looking after Korra and like helping her get dressed get ready for Janora's ceremony and all these sort of things so we're seeing that like that sensitive caring relationship between them that even though Korra is a sense of deep hopelessness and powerlessness mm -hmm. Asami is there to be that person to support her as best as she can yeah. um, and obviously Katara is the same with that for Aang, like when Aang is having those moments of where he is broken, she is the one who comes in to support him and look after him and kind yeah. of take him in and let him know it's okay to let these emotions out. Yeah, no, that's those are all really great examples, and uh, I'm 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 being called to a few others as well. I, I I think you know one of the things that I I think is not always uh, hope is this idea that like motivational speech oh everybody's inspired and hopeful now right and that's like i think of uh imprisoned in um avatar the last mm. airbender when katara is like i'm gonna save haru because it's my fault that they're all there and she's like all right y'all and she gives this like really rousing beautiful speech and all of the earthbenders are like nope <laughs> Um, and they're, they're zero motivated by that because they're in this profound sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And there's, mm. there's, they, they're, they're powerless to stop them because there's no earth around. And so they don't feel mm. capable. And then what I find really interesting is that she like coordinates this whole plan to get all the coal onto the top of the ship, gives them the tool they need. And still, they're like, nope, I, I, this, I, I'm, it's learned hopelessness, learned powerlessness. Mm. And then what she does is she begins to stand, she continues to model what it looks like to stand up to the warden and these people. And eventually what happens is because she's in relationship with Haru and Haru doesn't want her to get hurt and she's about to, mm. he is the also what i think is really important to note is he's the one who's been there the least amount of time right so this learned helplessness is not as applicable to him mm. and he fights back and then only at that moment does everyone else see that they can also fight back and so i i think this really highlights the relationality of of learned hope right hope is learned mm. hope is learned in the context of people um and i i think that's that's what comes to mind when i think about that does that what are your thoughts on that <laughs> <laughs> i can definitely see that it's that sort of thing of like 
I think it definitely also ties into the fact like it was clear that Katara wasn't quote unquote one of them. She obviously wasn't an earthbender. She brought these things in and it was clear she couldn't use it herself. She wasn't someone who was going through the same things that they did. It took someone who was actually like them standing up for them to realise that they could do it. Yes. It's like um it's not a great example, but this is the only thing coming to my head. It's like um the oh god, I've forgotten the name now. Uh the Stonewall Riot. So obviously the, the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the first person who th- threw the brick was obviously from the community, which led to the community themselves banding together to do it, to kind of fight for their rights together. I think if it was someone who just happened to be a random straight person it wouldn't have had the same level as effect because they don't understand yeah. what the situation is. Yeah. They like they won't face the same repercussions as the the group that it is affecting. Yeah. Um and I think it has that similar connotation. It's like that's why it didn't work straight away. It only worked when the person who was involved with that situation stepped up as well and the rest followed. Yeah. Okay. So just to kind of uh, summarize a little bit of what we've had a conversation around in terms of what we need to cultivate a resilient spirit is hope happens when we have the ability to set, uh, uh, set realistic goals, when we're able to figure out and achieve those goals and be flexible and find different routes, when we believe in ourselves. Uh, so that's cultivating hope in that practice. Practicing critical awareness is when we're able to reality check and then letting go of numbing, right? And so just some questions that Brene offers in terms of how we reality check are literally, is this real or fantasy? Is this a, a fake picture or is this a real picture? Is this doctored up or is this as is raw footage? Um, two, does this reflect wholehearted living or turn us into objects or commodities? So when we see something or we're perceiving something, it's like, oh, this turns me into something yicky. Or is this valuing me as a human? Then I think that's something that we should ask as well. And then three, who benefits from my seeing this and feeling how this aims to make me feel? So when the warden says, um, <laughs> I will treat you as well as you treat me, right? And mm. and then proceeds <laughs> to like throw people off the ship and beat them and throw them into solitary confinement. Um, we realize that like, what is his goal and who benefits from maintaining civility here? It's, it's, yeah. it's him, right? Not the prisoners. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think often this, this rhetoric that people utilize is something that we need to question who benefits from me being asked to behave the way that this person is making me act. Right. Um, so in terms of cultivating resilience, the, the, the final thing that I think is lifted up and spoken about is spirituality and in the text. And Mm -hmm. what I want to do is I want to save that for another episode because that is, there's just so much wrapped into that. But what I will say is that Brene is very explicit in this text saying that spirituality and resilience are inextricably connected and one cannot be (laughs) resilient without uh, some sort of groundedness in the connectedness of others. Um, And so I I, want to 
I want to say it, but I also want to make sure that we uh, give it enough time. And so we're going to save that for a future episode. Um, awesome. Did we miss anything in particular that we want to make sure that we hit other than that? Because that was on my list. Um, Not that I'm aware of. I think, uh, other than that part, I think we, we hit the majority of, of the things um, that we wanted to cover from in relation to like hopelessness and powerlessness and um, how that can be solved through resilience and in, and basically working on ways to keep hope and yeah. a sense of power um, yeah. within yourself awesome. and others as well. For sure. All right. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to come back in just a minute and discuss this lovely uh, DIG acronym that Brene offers us. And we're going to dive into those three things, and then we'll set y'all off on your listening ears to listen to something else. diving into this digging deep portion on on the podcast now with these three things d get deliberate i get inspired and g get going and so Brene offers this this cool thing in the book called a vowel check right and it's uh from a 12 step the 12 step process for like aa meetings and it's called a vowel check and so i just want to quickly go through these and then see if you have a different way of giving deliberate or whether you use something like this. Um, so A, have I been abstinent today? And again, abstinence is not like, oh, it's not have I been abstinent in terms of like alcohol. It might be alcohol, but it, but it might be something else as well. Like however you define it. Um, mm. What is the thing that you're numbing with? And then have you been abstinent from that today? Have you been like letting go of that numbing? reliance thing that you've been using mm. e have i exercised today i have i done something for myself oh what have i done for others today you am i holding on to unexpressed emotions today and then why is yeah what's something that happened what is something good that happened today i'm excited about this yay um so that's the vowel check, like getting deliberate, practicing that mindfulness around um, being deliberate about how we're working and being mindful of our numbing and or powerlessness and or resilience. And so is there anything that you do, um, whether it's asking some of these questions or um, to do to be deliberate about this process? Um, I guess a thing that I do is this thing that I call uh, well, I don't really call it, it's just a general thing of like checking in. So I have um, a few friends who also struggle with like numbingness and, and kind of either doing too much or doing just kind of finding ways to kind of hide the issues that are going on. 
and so we do this check-in with each other on different chats so each of us do it individually so we're getting multiple checkups from different people so we're feeling like there is someone there we're feeling that um there are people who are who care about the situation with us and are aware of our own feelings but it's also a good moment as like a reminder so like in my case like I get a message from uh, my friend Robert who say have I taken time to rest have I hydrated Mm -hmm. yet have I had anything to eat yet and questions like this and I ask the same because he um because they are just as uh uh, just as bad about uh, making sure they're staying hydrated and um well as as we refer to it as uh watered and fed like plants um and kind of things like that so i i do this checking in thing with some friends and they do it in return just so we're making sure that all of us are kind of doing better and making sure we're looking after ourselves so i'm hearing this like uh, accountability system right yeah um that's that's helpful because i i think that we there are so many like it's helpful to have multiple ways like what are the questions that we can be asking of ourselves and of each other in order to mm. maintain awareness because in order to get deliberate we have to be aware and so mm. that's that's the culture like the cultivation thing is how do we cultivate awareness around that and what i'm hearing from you is that you have people in your corner that are helping you um which is really helpful because you're also suggesting that like you you were saying you struggle asking for help and maybe in some respect but in this respect it seems like you do that fairly well where you're able to mm. lean on others and, and utilize that support um mm. So that's really awesome. Thank you for, for sharing that. So that's getting deliberate, right? We want to become more aware of where we stand and then start mm. to check those things. And so the next one, I, is getting inspired. And it's like, okay, what's going to motivate me? What's going to help lift me out of this, this like, bleh feeling and get into more of how do I, like, yes, I'm going to start taking these actions and I'm going to get going. Right. So mm. um, I'm, I'm curious, like what, like when you are in this mode of I need support, right. And I need to become more aware of my body and myself to identify what that support is. Do you have something that motivates you that like really kind of inspires you to get that process started? I guess it's kind of um i guess in relation to the inspired bit it's that i i have this love for creativity that when i am in that headspace of just feeling blur my ability to be creative is lessened i'll like force myself to do it but i lose that enjoyment from it mm. so to be in a better headspace so i can still have that enjoyment of like writing my novels or my short stories and stuff like that um so it's finding ways to kind of be inspired to be better so I can be happier with what it is that I'm doing. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the example that's provided in the book for this is the analogy of like stained glass. And Mm. um, it comes from Elizabeth Kubler Ross who wrote that people are like stained glass windows. Mm. Um, They like people sparkle and shine when the sun is out. But when the darkness sets in, like there is the stained glass is just stained glass there's no light to make it beautiful so it's only beautiful and it's only revealed if there is a light coming from within Mm. and that kind of like implies that like with resilient people like 
resilient people seem to be lit from within. And I want that, right? I want to be lit mm. from within. That sounds like great. I don't want to rely, which is so counterintuitive. I don't want to rely on this external need for light. I want to have that light from within me. But in order to cultivate that, it's complicated because I need other people mm. and I need that support. And I need to ask these people to help me be deliberate, right? Um, I love making things complicated because that's life. Um, and then get going, right? So once we've become aware, once we have the inspiration to act, what are the ways that we become actionable? And I, I'm hearing from you um, that it's becoming aware of my body, but also doing the things that helps me better. So like, not only is it becoming aware that, oh, I need water, it's like, okay, I need to drink that water and I need to eat and I need to rest, right? Mm. Um, and so it's listening to your body and honoring what your body is saying. But I'm curious, what else? What else is um, helping you cultivate this resilience? Um, God, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I guess it's just finding other things outside of being productive i guess is the thing like i like it's obviously for both of us being people who enjoy being busy it's um it's difficult to do something that isn't productive in a sense so like going for a walk i like i don't do that enough because i'm like no i need to keep being productive which means yeah. i'm not getting enough exercise i'm not getting enough fresh air which admittedly I'm allergic to heat, so there are some times <laughs> where I can't actually leave the house. Um, so that's not always fun. But um, things like that, so finding ways to kind of make sure that I'm actually getting out to do things that isn't about being productive yeah. and getting that into my routine. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I, like actionable ways to practice this is really difficult, right? But it also comes down to like sometimes it's, cultivating mindfulness in the sense of like i'm going to make this a daily mantra or daily meditation that i'm, that I'm thinking mm. about so that it's staying present in my mind i'm going to intentionally if you're a prayer person maybe it's praying since this is inherently connected to being spiritual right mm. um but whatever that is for us whatever grounds us in connectedness seems like a good place to get started and so listeners i invite you to think about what are these steps for you right um because I'm definitely trying to, to do better and I hope that we can all do better so that we can all kind of embrace this concept of wholeheartedness a little bit more fully. Definitely. So next week we're discussing guidepost four and this is a really uh, intense one because it's cultivating gratitude and joy. But in order to do that, we have to let go of scarcity and fear of the dark, uh, metaphorically speaking. And those will be, for those of you who are following along in the book, pages 101 through 112. And again, that's in the 10th anniversary edition, if not just the, the chapter on cultivating gratitude and joy. Uh, so, Fran, this has been an incredible experience and what an incredible conversation and a long conversation. It went longer than I expected. But, like, <laughs> whoa, tell us about you. If, you, if people want to find you and engage with your work, uh, how would you like them to do so? Yeah, of course. So if anyone is listening, who is obviously what you are, you will be a fan of Avatar, you are listening to this, um, you can check out my YouTube channel, uh, A Healthy Dose of Fran. I'll be getting back to Avatar content at some point. Um, I'm currently doing Percy Jackson content there, but you can check out all my past videos for Avatar content. 
predominantly Legend of Korra focus, but have Avatar The Last Airbender and Rise of Kyoshi theories. Um, you can check out my Percy Jackson podcast if you are a fan of that. Um, it is called The Best Damn Camp. It is on all podcast platforms. Um, and you can follow the social media for that at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I am also an author, so if you are interested in uh, finding, you know, a new author to follow and uh, see the budding career that I'm currently praying is hope it will work <laughs> out, um, you can follow me at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Fabulous! All right, y'all, do us a favor and definitely go check that out. We would love for you to explore Fran's work. And again, you can also find us at Bending Not Breaking uh, on Facebook, but we also have BNB underscore pod uh, on all the various platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the things. And uh, I hope you'll come and check us out. We also have a Patreon that we uh, lovingly appreciate when people join, and we have some fun content there as well, including conversations with me if you're interested on uh, a, a higher tier um, where we have monthly conversations about these guideposts and, and your context and relating it to Avatar. So uh, check that out if you're curious. But no matter what, we hope you have a phenomenal uh, grapple with this guidepost. Um, so again, this is uh, Bending Not Breaking. Fran, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you uh, for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I want to. So I want to thank you for sure. I want to thank Alex Mayfield, uh, Max Gongler, Noah Blanchard, and the Archive for hosting this podcast. And this has been Bending Not Breaking. Until next time, be well and do. Yeah.